Hi, I'm Josh Chang, your host, and you're listening to the Precision Guided Podcast, Georgetown Security Studies Review's official podcast covering all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history. Thanks to our audience for joining us on the second episode of the second season. Tonight, I'm joined by Noah Ringler. Noah Ringler is a second year graduate student in our very own security studies program and a staff scientist at Booz Allen Hamilton. He's a 2017 honors graduate of the Global Scholars Program at American University and holds a language certificate from Boazici University in Istanbul, Turkey. His research focuses on the nexus of technology and security and power projection, as well as the expanding regional role of Turkey and Turkish foreign policy's relationship with Turkish democratic deconsolidation. Noah has also conducted extensive research on diplomacy practices and has also traveled extensively in Azerbaijan. He is also an alumnus of the National Security Language Initiative Turkish Immersion Immersion Program in Izmir, Turkey, as well as the 2016 Department of Education Fulbright Hayes Fellowship in Istanbul. He has previously supported the Institute for the Study of Wars Turkey Desk and worked as a contractor for the Department of Defense. All views expressed here on this podcast are his alone. Noah, thanks again for joining us in the pod. It's great to have you here with us today. Glad to be here. I appreciated the uh, the Turkish pronunciation. For sure, yeah. Um, Noah, just to kick things off, uh, for one, uh, so I mentioned in the bio, obviously you've done a lot of Turkey-related research, and I know that later on in this episode, we'll be discussing the recent conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, but uh, tell our audience, what got you interested in the Caucasus and Turkish foreign policy for that matter? Uh, sure. So thank you for that that incredible introduction. That's about everything that I've that I've done related to uh, living abroad. So I was in Turkey for several years. Uh, I lived with a host family. I also uh, lived in the university setting and studied academically, and then performed some research projects in Azerbaijan, interviewing uh, senior officials and working with sort of their foreign policy establishment. So I initially wanted to go to Turkey uh, because I was a big history buff in high school. And uh, the amount of cultures that have originated in Turkey, passed through Turkey, built an empire that included the, uh, the Anatolian Peninsula and Asia Minor is just incredible. And I, and I loved that there's no limit to the amount you can learn and I'm still just getting started. For sure, no, thanks for that, for, thanks for that intro, Noah. So let's kick things right off. So let's first gravitate toward the Caucasus. So um, for our listeners who don't know, Noah recently published a piece uh, sort of exploring the outcomes of the recent conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh. And it seems like, um, I mean, as Noah's piece probably mentions, yeah, Azerbaijan seems to be the, seems to be the winner in this case. They've secured a ceasefire and obviously certain countries uh, chiefly Turkey and Russia, sort of also came out with their own sort of geo- geopolitical benefits. But um, I guess based on your piece, Noah, could you uh, describe to our listeners, um, yeah, what what sort of sparked this uh, recent conflict between the two countries? And Emily, what did Turkey, Russia, and um, if other countries are involved, what, what did they stand to gain from the recent conflict? Sure. So there's an incredibly, incredibly long history to this conflict, and it goes back 
centuries, but the the broad strokes are that the first Karabakh war, uh, as we'll call it, in the 1990s that came along with the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the power vacuum that ensued led to a, uh, a boiling over. It's actually one of the oldest conflicts that began you know, before the Iron Curtain fell and uh, led to uh, the assertion of independence by the Armenians residing in the Nagorno-Karabakh region. And that claim of independence of that Armenian community is uh, against the uh, internationally recognized borders of Azerbaijan, which are based on the borders of the Soviet Socialist Republic of Azerbaijan throughout the 19th century. And those borders changed numerous times throughout the 1800s and the 1700s between Russia and the uh, Iranian empires and, and in themselves were fairly fungible to people in the region, but internationally following the, the fall of the Soviet Union and the, and the establishment of, of the United States uh, unipolarity, the recognition of international boundaries became a, the bedrock of, of the international system, or, or at least a substantial part of it in terms of claiming sovereignty for these post-Soviet states. So Azerbaijan was able to come out of the conflict in the 1990s with a clear mandate for territorial integrity that the UN Security Council voted to support Azerbaijan's claim to control that territory, and then it could not secede from Azerbaijan. But Armenia won a military victory against Azerbaijan to capture that territory that was, uh, in, in addition to the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh where uh, ethnic Armenian population resided, they captured about 13% of the surrounding regions uh, and, and frankly uh, uh, displaced the Azerbaijani population in those areas. And those areas remained largely uninhabited and, and heavily mined, heavily militarized since the 1990s. So this mass displacement and the people affected by it, their families and other refugees became IDPs in Azerbaijan. And in, in part as a political uh, tool, uh, many of them continued to reside in, in uh, internally displaced persons camps. Additionally, the government gave many of them vocal places in society and, and continued to build around the unifying ideal that Azerbaijan needed to reclaim Nagorno-Karabakh and, and return those people to those home, their homes from the, the regions around Nagorno-Karabakh uh, that were previously uh, ethnically Azerbaijani. So Azerbaijan's national myth and, and part of its post-Soviet sovereignty is entirely built upon reestablishing and reasserting presence in, in these areas. And a lot of uh, Azerbaijani state building from signing the massive oil deal with a consortium of British and American petroleum buyers in the 1990s that led to Azerbaijan's incredible oil wealth, as well as the, the uh, other energy projects that they've been a part of throughout the region, uh, it, by, with, and through Turkish, uh, Russian, and European support uh, their, for their gas exports, led to their state capacity developing to the point where they're able to develop a very substantial military. They're able to uh, export a lot of natural gas to Israel, and uh, to Europe in exchange for arms. They bought a lot of very, very high-end tools from Israel, all sorts of autonomous drones and loitering munitions, as well as uh, the Iron Dome missile defense system and a bunch of offensive uh, missiles. In addition, 
Russia uh, supplies very substantial uh, arms on the international market. And then Turkey took special interest in providing Azerbaijan with military training and military tools, electronic warfare, almost anything that Turkey developed, they were willing to share with Azerbaijan. And, and more importantly, uh, provide military training to Azerbaijani officials. The Azerbaijani military was in complete disarray and uh, it was one of the only post-Soviet states where the Red Army fully left, uh, if not the only uh, post-Soviet state where the Red Army fully left the region after the, the fall of the Soviet Union, leaving them without a national army. So the development of the national army over the past 30 years was a very substantial change on the ground. Azerbaijan also has you know, 10 times the population uh, that they can pull into their military, a population of 10 million versus 3 million uh, total in, in, in compared with Armenia. And uh, this really changed conditions on the ground over the past 20 years. And negotiations had been stalled virtually since 2001. There was another big summit in 2007. And then uh, the Azerbaijani uh, high command grew so tired of the status quo and its uh, misalignment with what they believe their military and political standing to be in the international community, as well as on the ground and on the front line, that they attempted a, uh, a very small tactical maneuver in April 2016, which broke through an uh, area of heavily fortified Armenian positions and in their minds demonstrated that their military capacity had ridden to such a point that they would be able to recapture the territories. And that was what they messaged internationally. They attempted to uh, return to negotiations, but at that point it was getting to the, the end of the legitimacy uh, in, in popular support of the Sarkassian regime in Armenia, which uh, in 2018 was overthrown by a popular movement uh, led by Armenia's current prime minister, Nikol Pashinyan. And Pashinyan came in and uh, was a, 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 a populist in relation to the conflict and, and was fairly willing to assert the sort of uh, populist rhetoric surrounding uh, the status of Karabakh that, that Armenia had previously been asserting. And Azerbaijan, however, determined that they would give this new leader time and hope to sort of break a logjam in negotiations uh, because he indeed was a very fresh face on the political scene. And there was a lot of hope on both sides that progress would be made in a resolution. Unfortunately, this did not come to pass as we know from, uh, from the past year. And uh, Azerbaijan uh, over the last summer uh, in, in 2019, concluded as, as they likely did before 2016, that the military option was the most likely option for them to achieve their political and military aims. And, and I'm not speaking to whether this is, this is right or wrong, but this is the calculations that are going on in Baku. Uh, and the messaging that comes out of Yerevan is in, in Azerbaijan's mind, incredibly provocative to them. There is the Minister of Defense of Armenia in summer 2019 says that Armenia's policy if a war resumed in the region would be to capture more of Azerbaijan's territory. And at this point, uh, I would imagine Azerbaijan decides to begin planning this war. And 
over the summer, uh, Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan visits Karabakh. He does, uh, he drinks and uh, dances in the streets of Shusha, which was a, uh, a, the capital of the region throughout the, the Middle Ages and, the, and uh, the so, much of the Soviet era and, or sorry, the pre-Soviet era. And this essentially uh, becomes the backbone of the propaganda messaging from Azerbaijan about the necessity for militarism. Then comes the pandemic and a US election year and uh, global focus on domestic issues by various world leaders. And in my article, I call it pandemic pressures, but essentially this necessity to provide outlets for populations that are facing a tremendous amount of domestic hardship, economic hardship that's intertwined with uh, the pressure from the pandemic and the constraints um, from, from uh, public health measures. And so these two populist leaders uh, in, in the Caucasus are, are faced with, with these dilemmas and, and interested in retaining power the rhetoric just escalates to an incredibly, incredibly uh, bellicose point just within the year. Like be right before the pandemic in January, 2020, they met face to face and held an English language debate that was incredibly civil about the conflict. Uh, obviously it's, it's a passionate thing, but this was well and truly under the umbrella of dialogue. And then um, by March, April, May, uh, it is, it is, both sides um, with, with incredibly, incredibly uh, uh, bellicose rhetoric. And of course, Azerbaijan messaging that, it's, that it would be prepared uh, to launch a military offensive. So that's a bit long-winded, long but that's, that's how we got to this point. No, no, thanks for that awesome overview. I think that should give our listeners, hopefully, the history of the region, history of the conflict, you know, why the two countries are fighting. So There's so take, much more, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, take notes, people, take notes. Um, no, just like, I guess like a follow-up thing, I just realized like, I guess from reading your piece and just having also looked at this conflict, I know that usually the, we have the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, OSCE, and they have the Minsk Group, I believe, which sort of was entrusted with overseeing a, you know, a possible peace process, you know, throughout this conflict. But I know that obviously, it just, I mean, from my observation, it just seems like uh, the Minsk Group, OSCE, was just completely helpless, you know, during this recent spate of fighting. Um, and obviously there were calls for, you know, ceasefire, desist from conflict, but it, I mean, from your view, doesn't it seem like, do you think that the Minsk group sort of lost legitimacy as a sort of like an organization that could have been entrusted with the peace process? Cause I, it just seemed like they were powerless, like in this, in this point of time to just prevent any further fighting. And clearly I guess, cause Russia and Turkey were directly on the ground, um, in this point, and as your article mentions, they became empowered to this process, but I guess, where does OSCE go from here? Sure, and, and the, the group was created as a byproduct of the 1994 peace agreement that, that uh, led to a ceasefire, uh, not, not, a, not a comprehensive agreement, but it, it had tremendous legitimacy coming out of that process and, and, and legitimacy of those sort of international diplomatic efforts comes a lot from how much you put in on the diplomacy side. And neither Europe nor the United States had put substantial efforts behind uh, investing in the region. Uh, former National Security Advisor 
John Bolton did a swing through uh, the Caucasus in, in uh, the past few years, but it was focused on constraining Iran and it was not, and, and the, the Joint Chiefs have also done uh, some meetings uh, in the region, but the focus was not on the Karabakh conflict, although I'm sure it was discussed at length. And I, in hindsight, I think that if more resources had been contributed to the Minsk group process, it would have had tremendous power. The, the, uh, a lot of the international legitimacy that Azerbaijan feels that it has and that allows Azerbaijan the political space to uh, perform its actions without fearing, for instance, significant international sanctions, blockades, or, uh, or sort of pariah status is related to their, uh, the UN resolutions from the 1990s that support their position related to claims over the territory uh, of Nagorno-Karabakh. And the, the, the absence of Europe and, and European investment um, is not total. There's a tremendous amount of it, but if you're not willing to tangibly move military assets and financial assets on the ground the way Russia and Turkey are, and they do it fast and they do it very, in a very substantial way, um, then your policy uh, desires are not gonna win out. And, and Turkey has taken this um, over the past four years and, and maybe even a little longer incredibly seriously. Uh, the, the, the brinksmanship that they've engaged in in terms of being willing to put military assets on the ground and, and put their troops at risk, put their, uh, their budget at risk is more substantial than the actors seeking to constrain them. And that is essentially, you know, uh, it's SSP. So in a Clausewitzian sense, that's how you're gonna win the wrestling match. If you're willing to, uh, to, to have more blood and treasure in the game. And, uh, and I still think that the Minsk group can come back and have a very substantial impact on the process. There's still no comprehensive peace deal. There is still the need for a resolution of a litany of issues. There's still need for a monitoring mission, a demining mission, a humanitarian mission, an economic development mission, all the things that the OSCE is really qualified to do, um, they can still reassert themselves and do. There is a need to do an accounting of war crimes. There is a need to do an accounting of uh, misinformation and disinformation. And all of those things are desperately needed and uh, should not be left to Russia and Turkey to, uh, to do. And those are not, uh, those are areas that Europe and the United States can re-engage diplomatically and uh, financially that, that benefit the region, that benefit the United States ultimately uh, through, through trade and other ties and uh, that would contribute to, uh, to a long-term peace agreement in the future, although it seems far away at the moment. Right, exactly. And I guess, no, yeah, speaking of uh, Russia and Turkey, uh, I guess like, let's like, let's break this down. Um, first with Russia. Now, obviously we know Armenia, Azerbaijan, I guess, former Soviet republics, you know, traditionally within sort of the Russian sphere of influence, I guess, um, and obviously because of this recent ceasefire, we have now Russian peacekeepers on the ground. Um, I guess uh, in the Nagorno-Karabakh area, but uh, I guess what is what is sort of Russia's um, end game with this? Like, how do you think? I guess for Putin, has this always been reasserting Russian influence in the region? Um, how does it stand vis-a-vis -vis Turkey? Um, I guess yeah. What, what's sort of the Russian playbook 
right now with regards to the caucuses in the wake of this conflict? Sure, and and I have to preface that I'm not the Russia guy. I'm 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 the Turkey guy. But I, mm -hmm. in 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 this conflict, it's it's you can't leave aside that that this is not something that Putin wanted to have happen, mm -hmm. and that Putin has been openly angry about what happened because he was not the instigator here. He was reactive, um, and. Uh, he doesn't like that to be the case in, in my understanding. But the, I think it's more a tale of Turkish interest in, in reasserting into the region. And the fact that Russia ultimately came out on top has a lot to do with Russia having much, much deeper ties in the region that have been developed over many, many years. They have a formal mutual defense um, agreement with Armenia um, as, a, as a treaty obligation. And uh, they have joint Armenian-Russian military units. They also, you know, are, are a vital arms dealer and uh, they share a, a sea with Azerbaijan uh, in the Caspian. And uh, all of the, the, uh, the ties that they have along all of those lines, as well as the cultural ties that the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union worked to develop over hundreds of years, the population ties. A lot of the Azerbaijani and Armenian elites have deep business interests in Russia. They have banking interests in Russia. Uh, Russia has come and helped support, you know, financial institutions in both countries, lending agreements with both countries. So in terms of leverage on the ground, uh, both countries have substantial uh, interest in maintaining favorable relationships with Russia. And at the end of the day, there, there is some feeling that, that uh, Russia is tremendously powerful in the region in terms of, uh, you know, whether it's intelligence or, or military power, they are truly uh, able to dictate terms if they need to. And the consequences of, of sanctions or uh, cutting off some aspects of those ties are, are too much to bear for two countries where the, the regimes are less secure than they appear. And in a pandemic environment, uh, no government can be sure that they're entirely able to uh, maintain power because the dynamics are shifting so quickly and you have shifting power bases and, and, and uh, sort of avenues of influence. And so in that environment where everyone's very fearful about, about how they're gonna maintain their own rule uh, that's that's what makes it so ripe for conflict, but that's also what uh, makes Russia so powerful in terms of reasserting itself. And I do think that Russia ended up back on top in part because of his personal relationships uh, with um, both leaders. He had a falling out with Pashinyan uh, several years ago, which may be one of the reasons why Azerbaijan decided that now was the time to move ahead with this war if they were ever gonna do it. And it was you know, intentionally fairly close to the US election. So there wouldn't be a, a cohesive effort from uh, the US or Europe. It was, um, it, and, and it was also uh, at a, in a time that came in uh, before a very, a very dark winter when there would be additional uh, constraints from the pandemic. So I think that the, ability of Russia to, to come out in a very dominant place diplomatically 
the ceasefire itself was signed just between Armenia, Russia, and Azerbaijan. And the reason it ended up being a tripartite agreement was that Russia secured that obligation from both uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Turkey wanted it to be a four-way uh, solution and had Turkey with a seat at the table. Uh, and Russia was able to give both sides substantial uh, concessions, essentially, in the agreement that Turkey was pushed to the side. So both sides looked at it and they said that uh, Turkey didn't have anything to offer. I also think that Armenia would have objected to Turkey's presence as an arbiter entirely because it's in, it's entirely right. uh, partisan yeah. and uh, everyone knows that Turkey's on Azerbaijan's side. So I think that that does constrain uh, Turkey's ability um, and on the international stage. And I would and I would I think that's fair. Um, Turkey very substantially was involved on the ground, and Russia, uh, on the other hand, could have been more substantially involved, but they uh, interpreted their agreements with the mutual defense treaty to not extend to Nagorno-Karabakh, which was the only reason why uh, Azerbaijan was able to, to conduct uh, its offensive in, in, and recapture uh, the majority of Nagorno-Karabakh. No, for sure. Thanks for that overview, Noah. Speaking of Turkey, let's, let's pivot over to Ankara for a bit. Um, and I find it interesting because, well, for one, when we look at the Russia-Turkey bilateral relationship, they have a very interesting love and hate relationship um, not just like not just in um, I guess Nagorno-Karabakh, but you see in Syria where you know uh, Russian you know and Turkish interests have like collided in the Idlib region of Syria, and you've also seen them clash significantly in Libya, where I believe Turkey backs the government of National Accord, and uh, Russia backs uh, backs the uh, Libyan National Army. So it seems like yeah, they're all they seem to be on opposing side, and a lot of these sort of proxy conflicts, but I guess, what's your take on, I guess, um, I guess in the context of sort of helping Azerbaijan secure this victory using Turkish assets, um, do you think that this victory will embolden Erdogan to continue to be more assertive in other regions? I'm thinking particularly maybe the, maybe the Eastern Mediterranean perhaps, or yeah, just what does that look like for Erdogan? It just seems like this recent, um, in, this recent incident in the Caucasus has maybe whetted his appetite, so to speak? Yeah, so so I, uh, as I was trying to muddle through on the previous answer, it's a complicated tale uh, that is a geopolitical tale that is, is incredibly old. And these, these are two countries that are uh, bound together by a, uh, a and, and intertwined economically and geopolitically, but that both have very, uh, mismatched ambitions for what they would like a, a sort of regional hegemony to look like. And all of those regional conflicts are an internationalization of their um, political and economic conflict, as well as uh, what they would like those countries to look like in the future in terms of systems of government. And so all of these conflicts where they come to head have some shared features. Um, they, they prefer to act in ways that are commensurate with the constraints that they face domestically. Both countries have economic constraints that are very real. Um, they have things that they can offer, um, military advisors, technology, 
um, huge for Russia to a lesser extent Turkey, but Turkey, most of Erdogan's uh, key domestic allies now are deeply invested in Turkey's domestic arms industry, which has developed dramatically and become, it's, it's, it's substantially state owned and it is a very, very good rent that Erdogan can distribute to his loyal supporters uh, at home, even amid a, a economic downturn. Another thing you'll see Turkey doing is offering to develop various projects, um, much of it construction projects, due to Erdogan's close allies in the construction industry. And th those allies are so close that some of them are, you know, members of his family uh, that, that maintain those stakes. So, you know, after the Karabakh war, some of the first things you see are Azerbaijan promising to give all the favorable contracts to Turkey. And uh, you see the same thing in, uh, in Tripoli, in uh, the Government of National Accord, them promising all sorts of land rights and development rights and to honor all of the contracts with Turkish companies they had initially had. So there's a financial incentive. There's also an interest in having like-minded politicians. Um, there's a saying that a lot of people use that, that Erdogan believes in God, but he doesn't trust him. And he tries to put people that agree with him uh, on a religious and a, and, a, and a political level into power. There's a justice development uh, and development party in, in Libya that, that Turkey throws money towards. And, and Turkey will host in Istanbul all manner of these, these opposition groups. Um, it's the same way in Idlib. They, they're very interested in the reconstruction efforts in Syria and getting international money for that. Um, that can then be funneled through those Turkish companies um, back to Erdogan and his allies. And that also can establish a long lasting Turkish footprint. And Cyprus, Northern Cyprus doesn't get mentioned a lot, but it's an archetype for what this looks like in terms of a, a Turkish offensive or a Turkish backed offensive that includes proxy forces from another nominally sovereign area amid a domestic civil crisis and, and allows a crisis to become internationalized um, between, between conflict actors. And when, when Turkey has done these after it's, uh, you know, after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, they've been very reticent to uh, let go of those territories and always investing for long-term presence and uh, additionally long-term control and development of those regions. And so Turkey has a de facto area that it controls in, in Northern Syria, that it's, that it's significantly expanded in, in October, 2019 and all of its previous offensives. It has a you know, substantial control over Idlib province now after the past year. It has a very substantial hold over who comes and goes in the government of national accord in Libya. It has very, and it has uh, a very substantial control over what happens in, uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh and of course, Azerbaijan. Um, after Erdogan faced the coup attempt, you know, Azerbaijan was, was the first country to, to offer support. On the Russian side, they're competing on all of those same levels, um, and you know, and a very, very tactical level. A, a Turkish energy contract means Russia has lost an energy contract, um, but it's it's even bigger. There's there is those sort of military industrial complexes and and all sorts of levels. And as I said, I'm not the Russia guy, but the the internationalization of those conflicts I think is an incredibly dangerous thing that is a response to an absence of leadership from diplomats, an absence of uh, American leadership. 
and an absence of uh, European investment in in uh, working through uh, you know international organizations and established peace processes in those regions. Um, and when where there is power vacuums, it's very easy for states to make very small investments that lead to big returns. These are not incredibly complicated and expensive operations in comparison uh, with the type of wars that uh, that NATO and its uh, and its uh, partners have waged. But they're able to get substantial rents for for Turkey and its allies, and uh, and also, most importantly, they're able to shore up the the ultranationalist and nationalist support bases for both of these strongmen leaders, Erdogan and Putin, uh, and Azerbaijan's Aliyev, for that matter, that derive a tremendous amount of domestic legitimacy from support for a reassertion of the the same sort of ultranationalist paradigms and, and, and tropes even uh, of return to a bygone area of greatness, uh, return to an era of wealth. And, and you know, you'll, you can even talk to someone on the street in Istanbul who would say, you know, I think we'll get, uh, you know, new resources from the, the return of Karabakh. So even in a, a, a sort of nakedly imperialistic sort of subtext um, for maybe, maybe my life will be a little bit better if we get a little more territory somewhere in the world uh, that's gonna result in, uh, in money in my pocket. Um, so at, at least that's the rhetoric that they're selling and, and one of the bases for, uh, for them to stay in power. Yeah, speaking of NATO, Noah, um, and this is one thing that's interesting to me too, is I guess the Turkey's future in NATO, uh, obviously relations haven't been great between the rest of the NATO partners and Turkey. And I believe, uh, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the Trump administration uh, sanctioned Turkey for, I guess, the acquisition of the S-400 missile system from Russia. Um, obviously, many of the NATO partners have been deeply uncomfortable with the democratic backsliding that's been going on in Turkey. Um, and clearly, um, I, I would assume that, you know, most of NATO's hasn't been, a, if, uh, hasn't been a huge fan of Erdogan's foreign policy adventurism in a lot of the places we just discussed. So where does that bring Turkey, I guess, in terms of its future within the NATO alliance? Do we just see Turkey still formally part of the alliance, but just this sort of awkward pariah who sits in the corner while everyone else is having dinner at the dinner table? Um, is, does, do you think, I guess, would, would NATO consider expelling uh, Turkey at some point in the future? Does, does it just come to a point where Turkey like, is of the alliance, but not in it, so to speak? Um, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I think that my sort of uh, too long didn't read is, is it's better to have Turkey in NATO than not in NATO. Mm -hmm. And that the alliance itself comes into question if you can expel members. It hasn't happened yet mm -hmm. but uh, to, to any country, but that if you can expel members, any member who is signing up and committing major resources to uh, joining this, this defensive pact would say, well, maybe it's me next. Um, and maybe that would be a good precedent and that there's a, there's a guardrails on what type of leadership can be allowed to be in NATO. But on the other hand, if a democratic regime is to tr attempt to come to power and reassert itself in Turkey or in Hungary or elsewhere, and the country is now outside of NATO, 
and has gone another way and made a lot of commitments that it now no longer can keep, that's incredibly dangerous for that new democratic uh, leader who's coming in. So I think that you would short term solve some thorny security issues, but it would end up being very quickly that you had curtailed and now had even less of a policy influence through a bilateral or a multilateral relationship that you would be able to, to form sort of mutually agreeable pathways forward on security issues and that you would find yourself uh, not at the table and that that would be in the end counterproductive. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in sitting at the table and, and seeing what you can accomplish when you sit down with, with, uh, with leaders and, and officials. And I do think that, uh, that there is a lot of willingness. Turkey cannot no longer have relations with Europe. Turkey cannot no longer have relationship with the, the United States. There's extensive ties that Turkey needs. And you know it, it's in a dire economic position and it needs a tremendous amount of international support and, and uh, foreign direct investment. And I don't think that it would be unwilling to make concessions. Erdogan in his executive presidency role, his post-democratic uh, role is incredibly, incredibly transactional and willing to make deals up and down uh, on, a, on, a, on a pros and cons list and essentially drive those bargains home and, uh, and also exploit uh, what he perceives as vacuums and what he perceives as uh, powers that are not willing to constrain him in a more tangible way. Mm -hmm. And that's incredibly unacceptable, but it does not mean that there's not ways to constrain him. It just means that the uh, commitment to do so will require really creative solutions and it will require and not necessarily things that are that are uh, that contravene the NATO agreement, but it requires a ability to to do things like sanction Turkey, um, which was something that the Trump administration was was fairly reticent to do. They put sanctions for a few days over uh, the detention of of Pastor Brunson, and they put sanctions for uh, amid uh, the Turkish offensive on uh, northeastern Syria. But uh, lasting and, and, and durable sanctions that would, uh, that would constrain Turkey have a very significant effect. And Turkey was very quickly willing to cut deals um, to get out of, out of those. So I think that there is a tremendous amount of negotiating space that has not been taken advantage of and that an incoming administration will surely uh, begin to look for opportunities to re-engage and take advantage of as we look to, to, to move to a new chapter of uh, relations with Turkey. Sounds good. No, no, thanks so much for that overview. And we're just about time, but out of, out of time, but uh, no, we just want to thank you for coming onto the pod. Uh, to our audience, you're listening to Georgetown's Precision Guided Podcast, again, covering all things foreign policy, national security, and history. Noah, thanks again for covering the Caucasus and Turkey with us. Thanks so much. Those were hard questions. I hope some of it, my answers made sense. <laughs> for sure.